Episode 171 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with one of Elvis Presley's closest friends and employees, Jerry Schilling. Jerry was just a boy when he met Elvis, for whom he went on to work as a personal aide, attending his wedding to Priscilla, driving them home from hospital after the birth of Lisa Marie, accompanying Elvis to the White House to meet President Nixon, and as a pallbearer at Elvis's funeral in 1977. This interview took place 20 years later, in 1997, in the Los Angeles house that Elvis gave Jerry as a gift. As you'll hear, Jerry went on to manage other great music stars, including Billy Joel, The Beach Boys, Jerry Lee Lewis and Lisa Marie Presley. He also helped put together documentaries and films about Elvis, and is portrayed in Baz Luhrmann's hit movie Elvis. Jerry's autobiography, published in 2006, is called Me and a Guy Named Elvis, My Lifelong Friendship with Elvis Presley. Back in 1998, Jerry began by telling me about his early life. My upbringing in Memphis was actually from the poor side of Memphis. My dad, he was a blue-collar worker at the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. My mom died when I was a year old. I lived with grandparents, aunts and uncles in North Memphis, where Elvis lived. I was an infant. My older brother had to go to a boarding school after my mother passed away, and, and my dad helped support that. He was a good man, but, you know, couldn't raise two, two children. Ironically, Elvis seemed to know the story better than I even thought he did because we never discussed it. And when he bought me this house, a couple of weeks later, I was at Elvis's house in Beverly Hills, and he said, Jerry, do you know why I bought you that house? I said, I can't believe I have it. He said, you never had a home, and I wanted to be the one to give it to you. Tell me about your schooling and so on. Was there, was there any entertainment involved in that? Did you do any school plays or that sort of thing? I had one aunt in Memphis she had a dance recital. It was the Eugene Weekly Dance Recital. It was very popular. All the people's little girls and boys, you know, six, seven, eight years, whatever. It was a big deal. Somehow, rather than a babysitter, I wound up in Eugene Weekly's dance recital. And there were like 13 girls in the back of me. And I'm six years old. And I'm in this gold cowboy outfit singing. I'm an old cow hand from the Rio Grande. Years later, through my wife or somebody, Elvis got a picture of that. He saw the picture of me singing in my little tap shoes uh, with these girls. And when he gave us all identification bracelets, all the guys in this group, he had a nickname on the back of each one. And I'm not proud to say that mine was Twinkle Toes. <laughs> How did you get into the entertainment industry? At what age? Well, because of my family background, I was really into music at 10 and 11 years old. I laid back to the radio late at night. I was listening to WHBQ and Dewey Phillips before he ever played an Elvis record. In fact, well, there was no such thing. Mm. Um, he was really into rhythm and blues. And I used to go down to the House of Blues on Bill Street and pick up those records. And then I met Elvis in 1954, and, and he was only 19. How did he meet Elvis? One day I went to uh, the local playground in North Memphis. I went to play a ball game or whatever. There were five older guys trying to get a football game. 
And one of the guys was a friend of my older brother's, Red West. And I was in grade school. But I was playing grade school football. And Red said, Jerry, do you want to play with us? And the little kid always wants to play with the big boys. And I said, sure. And we went back to the huddle. And I realized that this was Elvis Presley, that two nights before, Dewey Phillips played his first record and said, a boy from Humes High School. And what happened, those football games became rituals every Sunday. And from that, Elvis was so popular that they couldn't get up six people. Within two months, it was the biggest thing in Memphis. And people would run out to get on the field. Elvis had to start getting jerseys, and I was very shy. So he'd always hold one, because he remembered I played with him before. What do you mean when you said Elvis had to keep getting jerseys? What does that mean? Well... At first, you know, when you've got six, ten people playing, you don't, you don't need any identification. Right. But as the teams got bigger, and people would, they would sneak into the game, you know, because here was a guy in Memphis that had a hit record in Memphis. And as people started watching and playing, being much younger and a little kid, I wouldn't have had a chance without Elvis looking out for me. And he would save me a jersey where I could play. You said that he was 19 when you first met. How old were you? I was just turned 12. Did you look upon him as a bit of an older brother? You know, I did. I did look upon him as, a, as an older brother. Maybe not right at the beginning, because I, I used to just say, man, I'd really like to be his friend. As a little boy would say, you know, he, he would laugh today if he heard me saying these things. But it was really true. I don't know, you know, I, I've met a lot of people since then entertainers and whatever and you know they have a certain air about them when you've had a couple of hit movies or some hit records i must say elvis didn't have a hit record when i met him and he was very special he was james dean he was marlon brando and he was elvis he was like everything that we were looking for wanting to be different he was the epitome of it he was a lovable rebel Elvis wasn't the type of guy you just kind of slapped on the back all the time, even though you've had moments like that. He was always on the edge. He's not the country boy that history has him portrayed pretty much now. Elvis was more of the, uh, if you would think of the personality of a James Dean, sensitive at this point, not knowing why people were his friends all of a sudden when he had none maybe three months before, and he was picking and choosing, and he read people pretty well. And he had a temper. I mean, Elvis, he chose to be a good person. That's why I loved him so much. He wasn't just a boy next door. He was more than that. Now, you explained earlier on that you'd met him and got to know him through playing football Mm -hmm. with your friends in the park. How did it progress from there to becoming one of his people, as it were? At that point, after the football games... Then Elvis would rent maybe the amusement park, the fairgrounds called Liberty Land now. Uh, and he would say, you know, we're going, if you want to come, come by. So that would progress to maybe the roller skating ring, rainbow roller skating. We'd have teams, kind of like the football. When he bought Graceland, I think it was 1957, was the first time I really was at Elvis's house. I was invited to the parties. I was pretty much... Except I was the only guy that wasn't working for him. I was now in, like, junior high school. And it was quite an honor. And Elvis was, you know, this is three years into the career. I mean, he's on television and everything. 
and I used to dream at that time of going to work for Elvis. Then we just kept the relationship. When he was in town, I'd go to the movies with him, maybe go to the house. We still played football. Not every Sunday, but a lot of Sundays. And I went to Arkansas on a football scholarship. And in 1964, 10 years after my relationship with Elvis, I drove home and I saw the cars at the Memphian Theater. It was about 2 in the morning and I was going to go down and say hello. And I saw Elvis was leaving back toward the screen, a side entrance, and I saw him look up and I was at the other end of the theater and he looked kind of tired, so I figured I'll see him tomorrow. I was leaving the theater and Richard Davis was uh, one of the guys who worked for Elvis. He said, Jerry, do you want to go back to the film exchange where I returned the film and let's go to breakfast. And I said, oh, Richard, I'm tired. Let's do it tomorrow. He said, well, we're leaving tomorrow. So I said, okay. We went to the film exchange. Elvis calls Richard. He said, do you know where I could get in touch with Jerry Schilling? And he said, he's here. He said, would you ask him if he'll come up to the house? And we're up to the house about 5 in the morning, and Elvis said, Jerry, I need you to come to work for me. And we left that day. In what capacity did he want you to work for him? He just said he needed me. Uh, a couple of boys had quit at that point. There was only three people working for him. When you started with Elvis, you were there for whatever he needs, whether it was running an errand or something more important. And then you worked into... But in the beginning, it was all on trust. Somebody that he's got to think. So many things that happened to this guy. He's going to trust somebody to live in his house, mm. to travel on the road with him, to know everything that you know you could know. And he had been observing me for quite a number of years at that point. You said to begin with you just doing little odd jobs and things. Give mm -hmm. me some examples. Well, I'm going to preference this by saying I later was public relations for Elvis. I later was producing a karate film for him. I was film editor. But I never will forget my first big task. We were at Paramount Studios doing a picture called Tickle Me. And Elvis asked if I'd go get some crackers because he was on a diet. He was eating soup and crackers. And, you know, this is the first thing the man ever asked me to do. We had had this trip across country. I played football with him at night uh, while we are driving. We talked about everything. But this was my first task. And we're sitting in the dressing room. And Elvis is having his soup and crackers. And he looked at me, you know, very disappointed and said, you know, Jerry, you got the crackers without salt. So I blew my first job. <laughs> but then, of course, uh, I had been a college football player. Uh, I was not hired for security, but anywhere we went, I, I would help the guys when security would come up. And about the second year I was working for Elvis, I st stood in for him in the movies. I did probably eight or nine movies as a stand-in for Elvis. And I got very, very interested in camera and editing and eventually quit working for him for a year to get into the union. And then he said, look, why don't you come back and you can edit on my films? How early on in those days did you think that he would go on to be this great legend or did you just think it was a bit of a flash in the pan? I wish I could have told you at the time because it's easy to say now. But no, he, he was very special. There was no... Uh, I hear, you know, if it hadn't been for Colonel Parker, if it hadn't been, though Colonel did some great things, Elvis Presley was going to be a star. And I don't think anybody would, would dispute this. Anybody really knows it. 
There's no doubt about it. Never, never flash in the pan. Did he change when he became famous and successful? Basically, I really don't believe Elvis changed. But if we want to talk in general, yes. It's funny what success does to someone. Everybody is keying off of you. You're different after successful. You know, success breeds a lot of responsibility and a lot of temptation. I will say this. I think Elvis handled it as well and better than most. He was still a human being, no matter how big he got. I would spend months at a time between movies. We'd just be sitting around talking late at night at the house or whatever. You really forgot who he was, and the next thing we'd be at the Astrodome, which at that time was the biggest building, and I'd go, oh, my God, you know, I forgot who this guy is. But he was a real basic human being, but very complex. Why do you think he was complex? I think Elvis had a great desire to be loved, and that's why he chose entertainment. And in choosing that, I think in the early stage with Sam Phillips, I think Elvis and Sam spoke the same language. You know, they loved music. There was no prejudice in the music. And then as that started becoming big, big business comes in. And then you choose a manager. And Colonel Parker could take it to the next step. But at that step, do you lose your connection, your music connection with Sam Phillips? And this starts a lot of turmoil inside a person. I saw this whole cycle time and time again. And I think things started becoming very... As there were more opportunities, there were more difficulties. As there was more abundance, there were more responsibilities. It, it's hard to say, but when you wake up in your own home and everybody's king on what kind of mood you're in, the pressure starts from the day you get out of your bed. Mm-hmm. That's why sometimes he spent three days in the room by himself just mm-hmm. to read and whatever. Mm-hmm. Because you'd grown mm-hmm. up with Elvis and mm-hmm. you were very much part of the Memphis area and that sort of thing. Was it difficult to imagine quite how huge he was all over the world? Yeah, it was definitely difficult to imagine how huge he was all over the world, and I don't think Elvis ever knew as well. You have to realize that there were times, you know, like maybe in 56, where I knew he was certainly big all over America. That's about as big as we thought at that point in Memphis. I think people, like in California stuff, they think more worldly. And and communications are much more today than everybody does, including Memphis. But there were times, though, where Elvis, it seemed like, especially in the mid-60s and stuff, we didn't feel popular at all. The records were not on the radios. He wasn't proud of his films. They were doing terrible. Sometimes it was hard to get girls to come up to the house. I always knew Elvis was gonna, it was a major star from the beginning. But to this extent, to the iconic extent, none of us would have had an idea, including Elvis. How well do you reckon you got to know him as a person? How easy was it to get to know him? I think Elvis was very difficult to get to know. Going back to the beginning, people would call him Elvis, but the guys who knew him real well would call him E or L. I knew not to do that until I knew him for a long time. 
But after he trusted you, and it took a long time, he would open up pretty much. And I think I knew him as well as I know myself, maybe not as well as he knew himself. But, you know, I was with him. I drove Elvis and Priscilla to the hospital when they had Lisa. I was there for their marriage. Uh, Let's talk about that wedding. How do you feel Elvis changed when he got married to Priscilla? Or did he change? I think he tried to change when he got married to Priscilla, and I think he actually did at first. Elvis always wanted a family, you know. It was very important to him because mm. he had been in such a close-knit family. his religion as well. And it, yes, the whole religious thing. and, and But he really wanted it. Elvis was... On a personal level, not on an intellectual level or business level, on a personal level, he was real straightforward, simple. He could have been a jet-set guy and all this type of stuff. His thing was his friends, his family, and whatever. Was it difficult for him being married when he had women throwing themselves at him all the time? Well, I'm sure he wish he had women throwing themselves at him all the time. On the other hand, let me say, he didn't have problems getting women but he was very choosy who he spent time with most of the time we, we we've all had our off moments but somebody he was going to spend time with and have in his house and uh he wanted to be and, and you look at most of the women in elvis's life they're pretty classy ladies well we've all heard and read mm. stories about his entourage, supposedly, including yourself, I imagine, having to go out and get girls from bringing them back to Graveside. What's the truth in that? Well, I've never went out and got a date for Elvis in my life, and nor would he ever ask me to. There were certain guys that maybe we would have been in Hollywood for nine months on maybe two films in a row, and uh, kind of out of touch back at home. Uh, a good friend like George Klein who was a disc jockey, who went to high school with Elvis. You know, he knew the pulse of the city. He knew the good-looking girls and and whatever. And George, he introduced Elvis to Linda Thompson. He introduced Elvis to Sybil Shepherd, to a lot of people. And it was a natural thing for him. Uh, never was there a guy on salary to go out and get girls. Some guys went out to get girls, for Elvis, supposedly, but mostly for themselves. But, you know, we had we had mixture of people in the... We were not all alike. In fact, we were quite different, the guys in the Memphis Mafia, if you will. Just explain what the Memphis Mafia was, then. Well, it started out as... It was an affectionate name that the press used to call us because there was a period of the time when we all wore black mohair suits and we carried guns on shoulder holsters and... It's kind of a friendly mafia, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think we did have characteristics kind of in common, and that was our devotion and friendship with ourselves and Elvis. And uh, I guess I was a little bit more the rebel than most guys in the group. As I said earlier, I idolized Elvis. And yeah, I, I loved him as a brother very much. But I came almost a little bit different generation, being seven, eight years younger. And... I was kind of into like Led Zeppelin and a lot of the groups at that time, and more the long-haired guy, and Elvis was becoming more Sinatra and conservative. If it was something important, I would speak how I felt, uh, which was hard for some of the guys to do because their whole life depended, mine too, 
it was not only a job, it was the friendship, it was everything. And when you lose that, you are out. So did you ever dare contradict Elvis? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Elvis and I have had uh, two or three. Uh, why I loved him the most was that he and I had two or three big, honest arguments. I mean, scream-outs. And I think I'm the only guy to ever worked for him that he never fired. Can you say what the arguments were about? Simple things when people live together so close. Uh, one time it was about, we're in Vail, Colorado, and uh, I was left in charge of the group. And the houses that we had rented, we were on a vacation, were coming up. We had two condos and a house. I was doing all the business in the daytime, which I didn't always do. But at this particular I was, time I was, and Elvis and the guys were on snowmobiles at night, and he wanted me to do that too because he was going down. He wasn't doing it in the daytime. He was going down the ski slopes at night. And anyway, I was getting up, and I was going with all the realtors and stuff, and I was at the condo. I was at Elvis's condo. He was at the house, and he called and said something about he was going to come to the condo. And I was in his bedroom because he wasn't there. So I figured, well, I'll just move to the guest bedroom. So I got there, and I was tired. We were all at each other's end at this point. It was one of those crazy trips where everybody was staying up all night. And, and anyway, he came in and said, well, I got Billy with me. I want Billy to stay. And I said, you know, I've been up. We had this argument because I didn't want to leave. And then we started kind of screaming at each other, and, and I just said, forget it. I'm leaving. He said, no, you can stay. And I left went to the house, and I quit. I had a temper uh, myself. Uh, no, Elvis had a tremendous one. Anyway, he called me the next morning. He totally forgot about it. I was asking me, I said, Elvis, I quit. And he said, well, you know, do what you have to do, but I don't understand. And he really didn't. So I quit, and anyway, within six months, I was back with him. But that was a little example we had a, uh, a big argument over uh, the movie A Star is Born. Barbara Streisand and John Peters came to Vegas to see Elvis' show and to meet with him. And there was a lot of people backstage in the dressing room. So John, Barbara, Elvis, myself, and Joe Esposito went into a walk-in closet and had this big meeting, ordered food in. And Barbara offered Elvis A Star is Born. Elvis knew what that meant to his career. He hated the movies he had been doing. And he knew the role was a role that could, uh, wasn't a glamorous role, but it was a real acting role. And he accepted, which I was thrilled with. And after uh, Barbara left and everything, my concern was John Peters had never done anything. He was a hairdresser. And I said, God, Elvis, this is great, but, you know, you know, John Peters, you know, I, 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 who wound up becoming a terrific producer-director, and I said, well, you know, Barbara and I will do what we want to anyway. And I said, well, that's the point, you know. And, you know, Elvis didn't like to be talked to that way, you know. And, I mean, he just he went crazy. It wasn't that he was so upset with me. I think he knew what was going to happen and that he was gonna, it was going to be negotiated away from him. And that's another big disappointment to him. In other words... Those are the things that I say is the reason why I don't think he's with us today. But uh, most of the time, let me be real clear on this, though. I wasn't there to be a, a pain in the ass to Elvis Presley. 
99% of our relationship was, you know, extremely close and friendly and, and, and all those things. But if something did come up, I felt free enough that I could speak my mind. And he gave me that freedom. How good-looking was Elvis in the flesh, and how much did he have to work on that? Man didn't have to do anything. He was He's the best-looking man I've ever seen in my life. I mean, you know, when he looked bad, he looked good. It just all came together, you know. I mean, the man was... I talk about we we became peers after my early days wanting to work with him. So I, I mean, I used to want to look like Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> which sounds ironic today, but, you know, what? he was a great-looking guy. Mm. He just had it. And his voice, I mean, were you privy to a lot of private singing sessions and things? Did you ever sing with him? Yeah. <clears throat> we were driving one day. Elvis was driving. Red was in the front seat, Red West. Charlie Hodge was in the back seat with me, and I was sitting right behind Elvis. And the guys, Charlie, Elvis, and Red used to sing a lot. You know, Red West was Elvis's main security guy red was a tough guy but he could really sing and he wrote some great songs too like if every day could be like christmas and some other stuff and charlie oh you remember him on stage he gave elvis scarves and he played rhythm guitar and charlie could sing he had been in a gospel group before so you were in this truck together a car we were in a car yeah and I forgot what the song was. Everybody's singing, and I was singing. It was really fun. It was great. We were all singing, and Elvis turns around and said, What is that noise? That's me. <laughs> so I haven't sang since then. <laughs> you said that you sometimes got yourself involved in security. Were there ever any serious breaches of security, any worrying times with Elvis? Yeah, one I, I remember very clearly. This is one of the times where... I was doing my film editing at Paramount Studios, and what Elvis would do was he would fly me in on the weekends to Vegas. I wasn't making that much as a film editor because I wasn't a full editor at the time. But every Friday there was a Learjet at Santa Monica Airport flying me to Vegas. I was going into a suite. But this is one time during the week before I got there on the weekend. This was like the second engagement. After that I was always there during the Vegas engagements. But I got a call from uh, Joe Esposito, and Joe said, uh, Jerry Elvis wants to speak to you. And this was like on a Wednesday. So Elvis got on the phone, he said, Jerry, uh, I need you to come here immediately. It's important. I'll explain it to you when you get here. So I went to the airport, flew in, got there. He said, I need you to be here before the show starts. So I got there. He had a plane here. And I got there, he was in the dressing room, in his wardrobe, and it was like 15 minutes before showtime. And when I got there, he said, come in, come in. He took me into the makeup part of the dressing room, just the two of us, and he said, there's some son of a bitch out there that's threatened to kill me. And he showed me the menu that they sent up to the room, and they scratched his face out, and I forgot what was written, but it's like, I'll get you tonight. He said, the hotel told me I don't have to do the show. The FBI's in on this. They were in the audience. And he said, Red's going to be in the audience. I want you and Sonny, Sonny West, who was also security, in the orchestra. And I don't want any maniac running around saying he killed Elvis Presley. 
He said, go for it. So the show starts. I'm sitting right behind the piano with a shoulder holster. Sonny's on the other side. Uh, Red's coordinated with the FBI. And we had we had gun permits. This was all legal stuff. And about halfway through the show, some guy in the balcony, which never happened, I mean, some guy goes, Elvis! And Elvis dropped to one knee in a kind of a karate thing that makes his, your body not as vulnerable oh. like straight. And Sonny and I are looking, you know, I got my gun right here. And Elvis said, yeah? I mean, we knew this was it. Yeah. And the guy said, could you sing Don't Be Cruel? I was jumped up singing. Yeah. And no, that was... But that was the scariest yeah. real moment when the FBI said, you, you can't ignore this threat. Yeah. Uh, there were other situations, but I think that's yeah. a good example. What would you say was the most special moment you spent with Elvis? Wow. I spent a few special moments with Elvis. Uh, the most special moment I spent with Elvis was uh, sitting in the waiting room with Elvis for the birth of Lisa Marie. And what was he like as a father, would you say? I was so surprised. He was so natural. You know, I was like afraid of babies and things, kind of, you know, figure, you know, he didn't have one either. He immediately picked up Lisa Marie. He was like, uh, I drove him and Priscilla and Lisa home from the hospital, and we're standing at the uh, in the kitchen by the refrigerator, and he was saying, here, Jerry, hold her. And I was scared to death. He was like an instant father already. And he and Lisa had just a really special relationship. You could see the twinkle in both of them's eyes. It was just amazing. Because some people seem to have got the impression over the years that perhaps he shouldn't have got married and he shouldn't have become a father, but you obviously think otherwise. Oh, absolutely. You know, every marriage doesn't work out, but what worked out for Priscilla and Elvis, and they still had a love for each other till the very end, and they have a beautiful daughter who they were both proud of and, and could still be very proud of, who is now a lovely mother herself. Uh, anybody thinks that that shouldn't have happened, I don't know where they're coming from. Yeah. It seemed as time went by that Elvis gradually became a victim and probably a prisoner of his own success. Would you agree with that? Unfortunately, I have to agree with that, that uh, the success did as much good as it did I do think that, certainly in a certain way, Elvis did become a victim of it. Mm. You know, now, I mean, it's never to a point where Elvis, you could say, "Man, you don't have to do this; you could get away." No, I mean, he loved success. He loved being recognized. He loved what he did. I think the only thing he didn't love is he he wanted to do more, yeah, you know, a little higher level of things, and he was capable of doing it and. Uh, he had accomplished many years ago the things that he was still doing, and he was bored with that. Uh, to what extent was he a prisoner in his own house, though? Oh, I don't think he was a prisoner in his own house. I, I wouldn't call it a prisoner, but I... Um, that's, a, that's a hard one to answer. But we only hear of him going out late at night, hiring fun fairs, as you said earlier, hiring movie theaters things. It wasn't a normal existence. That must have been very tough on him. Well, no... I mean, it was a luxury not to stand in line and not to fight crowds. Uh, to be able to sleep in after you've finished your movie or finished your tour, this was the fun things. To be able to go to a movie when you felt like it after dinner, 
you wanted to watch Johnny Carson and and still picking out movies and get to the movie theater after it closes at one in the morning and it's quiet, and you got the people who work for you, maybe twenty other friends at the movie theater, and then you come back home just about daylight, sleep through the busy part of the day.、Uh, But didn't he just yearn to mingle with normal people and have a normal existence? I don't think Elvis yearned to be normal at all.、Joy、he loved mingling with normal people、uh, and a few crazy people, but no, no, he loved his lifestyle. He created his lifestyle.、Uh, there were sometimes it was out of necessity, but most of it wasn't. It was because that's the way he chose it.、Mm. You know. Elvis was known to be to be very generous with the people he cared about. So he was obviously very generous with you. No, the house is the most special thing of all. He bought this view in 1974. You right, said, right. and he had a house up the road. Is that right? He had a house in Homeby Hills on Monavell. Actually, it was the house that、uh, he and Priscilla bought.、Uh, The first house they got when they were married was up on Hillscrest, and it was too open and vulnerable. And、mm. so Priscilla found this house. It was Blake Edwards' house. And、uh, they redid it, and I was living there with Elvis. And this was around the divorce time, and he decided not to have a home in California. And I was still living there after he went back because the house hadn't sold at that particular point. Anyway, he was back in Memphis, and I was out here. And there was a karate film that he wanted me to produce. I was producing it. It was a team of karate guys. Elvis Presley karate guys going through England, Germany. Anyway, he goes to Vegas and he asks me to come over and give him an update on the film. He wasn't playing there; he was、uh, visiting a doctor there. He and Linda Thompson. So I went over to Vegas. I had all the finances and where we were, and you know the whole thing. And he was upstairs staying at the doctor's house. He and Linda, and it was, you know, it was about. Two o'clock in the morning, and I'd spent about three hours with Elvis. Very, very nice, pleasant time. And so I said, well, "Elvis, I'm going to go back to the hotel." And I had checked into the Hilton Hotel before I went over. And he said, "Well, why don't you stick around a little while?" And he was making a phone call, and I, you know, I, so I said, "Sure." So I was downstairs, and I guess、uh, about forty-five minutes to an hour later, Charlie had come back to the house and. Charlie came downstairs and said, "Elvis wants to see you." And I walked in the room, and it was、uh, Elvis and Linda, and he gave me the check for this house. He knew that a friend of mine and his, Rick Husky, who lived here, was selling the house. Rick was a big TV producer and、uh, here, but he and I had gone to college together in Arkansas. And he, first thing he ever wrote was.、Uh, I think called Elvis goes to college. Anyway, he had been on the phone with Rick and said, "You know, when can you leave?" And Rick said, "You mind if I sleep through the rest of the night?"、Mm-hmm. He found out what the house was, gave me a check for it. And what did he say to Elvis when he gave you the house? I was, you know, I, I was so dumbfounded. I mean, I never thought I'd ever have a home in my lifetime. You know, maybe, but certainly not then.、Mm. Did Elvis ever come here with you? We came here the first night I came.、Uh, he took me here. We came up, him and about three or four people. We sat on the couch here and talked a lot. He was as happy as I was, you know, and he really was enjoying just sitting here and knowing that he bought this house for me. That's、mm-hmm. that's how he was. Any other times he came here? 
He came here to pick me up a couple of times, but not, you know, the, the first night was the real, right. where he spent up two or three hours and, you know, we talked and stuff. This house ain't big enough for Elvis Presley. <laughs> How do you mean it? Well, you know, well, you know, you got the guys coming, you got, you yeah. know, yeah, and, and it's bigger now than it was then. What other mm. things did he give you apart from himself? Well, you know, Elvis was very generous. I, I don't think he bought but two or three houses for people, uh, so this was pretty special. Uh, but, you know, over the years, Elvis bought me a motorcycle. He bought me two Cadillacs over the years. Uh, Mercedes, used one, <laughs> and uh, brand new Trans Am the first year they came out. But, you know, people talk about Elvis's generosity. All those things meant a lot to me, some more than others. But the main thing that he gave me was his time, uh, his understanding, his insight. I learned more from Elvis, and he, he didn't sit down and teach me. Just from his example, that was the biggest gift he ever gave me, much more than the house. Now, you're talking about gifts from Elvis. Your ring is very special. Tell us about the story about the ring. Well, you know, people kind of caught on to the fact that gifts and stuff, uh, Elvis was generous from time to time, not all the time. Uh, so it was one Christmas somewhere in the mid-'70s. I'm at Graceland with Elvis. We're upstairs in the bedroom, and uh, it's Christmas Eve when all the relatives and friends would come around. That Basically, maybe Elvis, most of them wouldn't see until Christmas time, and there was Christmas bonuses or gifts or whatever. Elvis, it was like 10, 10.30 p.m., and he was like, you know, I saw he just kept procrastinating, and he said, you know, I just really don't feel like going down there this year. And I said, so don't. And he said, okay, I'm not. <laughs> it was like that kind of conversation. About 11.30, Elvis said, Jerry, I would like to get Grandma something. Grandma lived in the house, been with Elvis forever, from a wonderful woman. That was Vernon's mother. Mm -hmm. Lived with Elvis even in Germany from day one. So um, he said, would you call uh, Harry Levitch, the jeweler in Memphis? Harry must have got up there about 12, 12, 15. Elvis picked out some piece of jewelry for his grandmother. I don't remember what it was. And he said, I'm going to get my dad something as well. So he got Vernon a ring. You know, it's getting close to 12.30 a.m. now, and people are left starting to leave downstairs. I'm paying, writing a check out to Harry Levitch. And I go back in, and Elvis is, said, Jerry, come here, I want to read you something. He had a book called Cairo's Book of Numbers, a numerology book. And he's reading me my number, which he had it figured out it was a number six. And at the last paragraph in the book, my number six, said you should wear an emerald close to your skin for good luck. And he put this on my finger. And I only wear this when I'm doing something business-wise or personal regards to Elvis but this is what I call my good luck ring <laughs> very jealous of the Beatles what do you say to that well Elvis uh, I don't think was jealous of any artist certainly not the Beatles he wound up recording I think three of their songs he had to be there the night they met you would see there was you know there was no jealousy of Elvis and the Beatles 
uh, I think both were way above jealousy. There was a lot of mutual admiration between the two. What of reports later on that he tried to have uh, John Lennon deported? Oh, he never tried to have John Lennon deported. When Elvis and I went to meet with President Nixon, uh, he wrote the letter, you have to understand, Elvis wrote in there a lot of things that he knew would get to Nixon. Real feelings, uh, he would have never had the Beatles at his home if he didn't like them, like their music. And uh, there's always going to be that thing, but uh, in real life it wasn't. What was the date of that meeting with Nixon, and what was your, your greatest memory of that day? It was 1970, I think December 21st. Walking in, opening the door, or having the door opened at the Oval Room of the White House, with Nixon down at the other end signing something. First time seeing that live, I was stunned, and the and the thought of Elvis laughing pushing me through the door because he knew I was. <laughs> the only time he came to Britain was when he stepped off a plane at Prestwick Airport in Scotland. Why didn't he come to the UK and tour? Well, he certainly wanted to. I think he was discouraged and basically kept from it. I know personally myself that one night we were on tour and he... Uh, he was just ratting and raving about, damn it, I want to go to Europe. I don't know why it's such a security problem. That's why he bought the Lisa Marie, was to, to tour overseas as well as America. There was always a, some business problem that was brought to Elvis why he couldn't do it. Maybe some of the business problems were legitimate and some of them were not. But quite honestly, Elvis would be he would be bored doing the same thing over and over, playing the same place, 61 shows in Vegas in a row. He needed that outlet. He wanted it. He was asking for it, saying he wanted to. And I think those disappointments, along with some other ones, is the reason of his boredom and is the reason he's not with us today, quite frankly. Now, if we were to believe... A lot of the things have been written and said about Elvis. The people around him don't always come off very well. I mean, Elvis went downhill pretty fast at one stage. And a lot of people seem to think that the people around him could have done a lot more to help him. What do you say to that? I think there's some truth to it. Maybe I could have even done more to help him. I'm sure I could have done more. Uh, I did try. And I did get him to a hospital the second time after a, another heavy argument with Elvis, but the bottom line is we went back to the hospital and my point was well made. At the same time, you have to realize that, not to the extent, but I'm going to say us in general, we're living the same life that Elvis was. Maybe everybody wasn't, we weren't the, the absolute normal people ourselves, and we weren't living a normal life, and we were gradually had seen things that didn't harm anybody, now they kind of did, and it was all gradual to us. I mean, you know, we lost a couple of friends before Elvis. Through living that lifestyle? Partly, yeah. The thing I learned the most in living with Elvis Presley is you better be pretty disciplined if you're going to survive. Mm. Survive with any dignity, you know. Were you all indulging in the same way that we believe Elvis was? Not to the extent uh, at all. 
but from time to time, some people more than other people. Most of the extent of the indulgence in any type of medication, mostly with Elvis and and the group, was more of a, a sleeping pill or a diet pill. The guys never was into the Demerol and the heavier stuff that... Uh, we weren't even aware that much that Elvis was until there started becoming problems, you know. Mm. So, why did you all allow him to to have the sort of food that he had and to take the pills that he did? Why didn't you realize what it was doing to him, the people around you? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, this was Elvis Presley's life. This was not Jerry Schilling's life. Mm-hmm. But as a friend. As he was a friend to me in, in, in troubled times, I tried to be a friend to him, and sometimes I was. Uh, I have flown out here to do a movie or something while I was working for Elvis, and, and one of his doctors would say, you know, could you meet me for lunch? And I said, sure. And I was handed at lunch a bottle of pure Demerol, which is about as bad as you can get. And I told this doctor, you never saw me, and if you want to, I'll I'll go all the way. You know, you tried to intercept, you tried to... I mean, Elvis really didn't think I even knew he was having any problems. It was a pride thing, too. I had to be very careful. Um, At what stage did he realize he was in trouble? Oh, I don't know. The one time he realized he was in trouble was probably the first time he went to the hospital. That was a major decision for Elvis to make, to be admitted to a hospital. Not that it was being admitted. He, he did have a colon problem, and he did have a liver problem. But uh, I had the room next to Elvis at the hospital. I mean, we, we kind of called it the hotel. It was kind of the same setup, the blacked-out drapes and everything. But Elvis had taken sleeping medication for so many years you know, just the normal amount or whatever, that they didn't give him any medication for like nine days to sleep or anything. He was fine. He wanted to, you know, whatever the doctor said. I mean, he was rocking on the end of the bed. They finally said, you know, we have to give him something. But there was a psychiatrist working there who was supposed to be a liver specialist, and Elvis came to my room one day and said, you know, Dr. Knott is a psychiatrist. And I said... He said, I know. And, but he was cool with it. In fact, he came to the house a couple of times. And, uh, and then Elvis was in great shape for a year, you know. But to what do you attribute his demise? What did you think he was depressed? I think of the time, there were three major things that he was dealing with. I think he could have dealt with any one of them separately without us losing him. He always had a fear of getting older. He didn't like being 40, which seems ironic today, but and his health, he was having some major health problems without medication being the cause. He was going through a divorce, which personally, even though it might have been his fault going through the divorce, it didn't sit right with himself, with his own soul. And then the career disappointments. He didn't get a stars born. He didn't travel to, to overseas. He didn't do all these things. He was bored with his work. Uh, he loved singing. Don't get me wrong. I shouldn't say bored with that. And he loved, but he needed challenges. You look at his career. Every time he had a challenge, he met the challenge. When you saw he was down, did you ever feel that he might die? 
I never felt that he might die. And don't forget, I quit a year before he died, and the way he looked when I saw him on that CBS special, I couldn't believe. I'd never seen him look that bad, and I couldn't believe anybody would let him go on camera that way. Why had you quit? And from what post at that point? I had been working publicity. I'd been helping with the tour management and doing, you know, because I'd quit one point to learn touring, and that's when I was with Billy Joel. So you quit Elvis to go work with Billy Joel? Well, what, no. Yeah, to begin with, but then I went back to work for Elvis. And what happened is, is uh, when I worked with Billy in 75, part of that uh, couple of years, Billy opened for the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. I went back to work for Elvis. I had a pretty open-door policy at this time with Elvis, which was real unusual. Usually if you quit, that was the relationship. Mm-hmm. When I'm in Vegas working for Elvis, the Beach Boys tour manager asked me if I would assist him. And uh, I said, what does that consist of? He said, I know you're working with Elvis Presley and you're not going to do it. But And he said, you know, hotels and all that crap work. Bottom line is, I told him if I could learn the, if he would t- take me in to settle up the box offices, I wanted to learn that with the Beach Boys, that I would do it. Elvis would let me go. I was a five-week tour. Then I'm back working for Elvis. We were in Vegas. I was doing the personal public relations and some other things too. But mm-hmm. basically that was yeah. it. And I got a call from Carl Wilson about me being the tour manager for the Beach Boys. And I said, I can't do it because your tour manager hired me. And about six months later, I got another call said, the guy's gone. And quite honestly, at 70, 76, I just kind of felt Elvis was getting quieter. I felt if I stayed, I was just going to be a pain in the ass, if you will. Everything was getting so... It's like everybody around, as long as he was he was in a good mood, everything was fine, and everything wasn't fine. I just wasn't happy. Were you worried about him? Of course I was concerned about him, but I wasn't worried that he was going to die. If I thought he was going to die, not that I could have done a whole lot about it, but I would, I, I would have spent every moment I could with him. I wouldn't have left. When did you last see Elvis, and what was your last conversation with him? Oh, God, I don't know. When did I last see Elvis? Well, I mean, I know it was in 76, but I'm trying to think of the situation. I know it's when I went to do the tour managing of the Beach Boys, and then I became manager, and I was just became manager like the day Elvis died. I was doing my first tour as full manager. And do you I got when the, you lost fight to Elvis? Probably three months before, by phone. Do you remember the conversation, how it ended? Uh, it was just a, like normal, how you doing? I know I waited a long time because uh, I called Graceland and Billy Smith was there and Billy answered the phone. And I said, yeah, I'm just calling to say hello to Elvis. He said, okay, wait a minute. I waited like 40 minutes, you know. But it was like a, just a nice conversation. I was talking about I was going to catch up with him. You know, uh, the last real heavyweight conversation was a nice conversation uh, was we had here at Linda Thompson's apartment. It was when he knew the book was coming out finally. I had already told him. There's another time he got mad at me because I ran into the attorney at my gym. And Elvis just would not believe that anybody, any any friend or ex-friend would, would do this. These are the Wests. Yeah. So anyway, I had told him 
that their attorney, who had been partners with Elvis's attorney, and obviously he was upset. He wasn't upset at me. He was just upset. So anyway, when he had an investigator out here trying to work out some deal, he asked me if I would come over to Linda's because he had sold the houses, and uh, I went over. Then the uh, investigator came in, the private eye, and said, you know, for everybody to leave, I started to leave. There was like three or four people because we were in Elvis's, in Linda's bedroom. And I was Jerry, you stay. And he told the investigator, anything you have to say, you can say in front of Jerry Schilling. And he let me know that he appreciated me telling him, and he just couldn't accept it. You know, Elvis said a lot without saying a lot, you know. How did you find out when he died? How did you find out? I was uh, right here when my paperwork for the Beach Boy tour, and I got a call from a person who lives right down the street used to do Elvis's hair, Pat Perry, and she told me. And we'd had this drought, and I walked out to the balcony. I mean, I was, I, I was devastated. And it started raining. And then I got a call from Priscilla uh, saying that Vernon was sending the Lisa Marie back, and I was to accompany her on the plane. I never will forget my friend, Rick Husky, who owned this house, came by to take me to the airport. And just as we were driving up to the plane, the radio announcer played a record by the late Elvis Presley, and I went, oh, my God. I mean, to, you know, he was just my, he was my friend, and he was dead. So, and I think that's it for me. <laughs> you described him as your best friend. Yeah, I'm um, not saying I was his, but he was certainly mine. Fair enough. Um, how did it feel to lose your best friend? Very vulnerable, very scary, and very sad. With Elvis alive, I don't know, Gail always gave me, since I was 11 years old, a certain amount of strength, you know, 12 years old, personal inward strength, and I felt very vulnerable. And the worst thought in the world was that I was never going to sit up all night and talk to him again. Mm. I loved that, you know. Uh, he was a very interesting, deep, loving man, you know. Was it difficult having to share your grief with the rest of the world? Oh, I don't even know if I did. Uh, you know, I was a pallbearer, and I went back, and I just remember people, and we had to help. with the. You know, we had 10,000 people or whatever it was viewing the coffin, and uh, you just kind of went into a mode operation of getting the job done. Uh, it didn't hit me fully until I went to New York to catch up with the Beach Boys about two weeks later. I was in Carl Wilson's room at the Sherry Netherland, and I realized, I really realized I'd never see him again. I, I, had, I had a marble wall, broke my hand, compound fracture. That was an emotional release finally after it. You know, I had to be cool when all the people were there and everything. And uh, and then the phone rings, and it was Billy, Joel. And he said, Jerry, Elizabeth and I thought you might want it. We want, I wanted to play something for you. And I went up to their apartment, and uh, he had gone down to a little club called PJ's the night Elvis died. And he recorded the tape, and he started by saying, I guess Elvis would just want us to rock. And he did this great tape. And he played it for me, and I think he destroyed it after that. I don't know. You How know, did he react when he played the music? It was just a real wonderful, nice gesture that I'll never forget, and it made me feel better. 
It sounds like you still know Miss Elvis a lot today. I try not to be on the bandwagon. I get asked to do a lot of things, which I'm very proud of, but I don't want to someday not have feelings and hear myself talk. And, uh, yeah, I still have a lot. I miss him, of course. Nothing will ever be as good. Now, you said that you'd left Elvis's employ a year before he died. Yes. After he died, did you have a lot of regrets about your relationship with him? No, I don't think I have any regrets about my relationship toward Elvis. In fact, I have quite the opposite. We had an honest relationship. I tried to be uh, productive for Elvis. Uh, he was certainly great to me. No, I have no none whatsoever. Mm. Can you just skim us through what happened to you? Where did you go to? What jobs did you do? So on. After Elvis died. I had Jerry showing management. I was already in management. I was managing the Beach Boys before Elvis died. Basically, that's what I was doing. I was managing the Sweet Inspirations, who were with Elvis. Because you married one of the Sweet Inspirations. Was that your first wife? Second. Did Elvis ever give you any advice on relationships or children or anything? Oh, there were times when, uh, yeah. And if he thought I was growing up in a, in a situation or a relationship... Elvis, uh, you have to understand, Elvis always, even after I grew up, looked at me as a younger guy. I was, it was so much different when you're 12 years old and somebody's 19. But when I am 25 and he's 40, I mean, I feel like I'm an adult. And uh, I'm sure he always looked at me as a younger guy. So, you know, he never overly, but... Any advice he gave me out of just pure friendship, it was always pretty damn good. He was a pretty insightful person. Did he ever ask you, or did you just feel an automatic responsibility towards looking after Priscilla and Lisa Marie after he died? That was just an automatic thing. It just felt natural. It felt like family. It wasn't anything you had to think of, you know. It certainly helped make up for the loss of Elvis, too, you know, uh, to be close to his family, uh, to people he loved, you know. How much do you talk about the old days with Priscilla and Lisa Marie? How often do you see them and talk about the old days? Not that often. Lisa sometimes, you know, will ask about her dad, about something. But um, Priscilla has a different life, personally. You don't just sit around talking about her (laughs) ex-husband. I mean, you have to put it in those terms. doesn't mean that Priscilla and I never talk about Elvis, but it's not the norm where we go back to reminisce. Did Mm -hmm. Priscilla and Lisa Marie come here at all? Well, Lisa Marie's been here a lot. There was a time she worked here. She was my secretary, and I was working out of the house. What about secretary now, eh? Oh, yeah. Well, this is her first job, bless her heart, and uh, she actually did quite well. But uh, we had a serious meeting, and she said she really wanted to you know, work, and and she was very serious about it, and she was. And then we moved to the offices in 9200, and she continued to work for me. Priscilla has been here many times for dinner and, and fun, and you saw some of the, you know, photos and whatever. I mean, we still do that a lot to this day. You told us a lovely story about the gym and a couple of the machines. Uh, I got my universal machine. Priscilla was redoing her gym 10 years ago. So anyway, she gave me the universal machine, which uh, it was a, a gift of health, which I dearly appreciate from Priscilla. Okay. And then uh, 
I was in Vegas right around the same time, almost 10 years ago, because I was trying to get a gym together. And I had been pricing some treadmills. I was talking, Colonel said, well, somebody gave me a brand new treadmill. And he said, uh, you'll have to ship it back, but I'm going to make one deal with you. If when I come to your house, I can sit on it because I can't walk very good anymore. He was quite old at the time. So anyway, that was my treadmill and my universal machine. What percentage of the people around Elvis do you think remain true to him to the end? I don't even think about it. I, You know, I haven't even read some of the books that, that I'm sure I'm in. You know, it's important to me, and because of the 20th anniversary, this is a special time, I don't go to the Elvis conventions, and I don't do all that. I, I must continue on in the future. And you can really get caught up, and it's been detrimental to some of my peers. Uh, you get a false sense of who you are, because there's so many fans that loved Elvis so much, and the mere fact that you knew him or something, not because of maybe your accomplishments or whatever, but just because of that, and, and that can be pretty dangerous. It's very easy to get get into that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there, there are people, there's camps out there, and these guys are good and these guys are bad, and I just, you know, it's not that important to me. Now, we got to the bit in your career where you're looking after the Beach Boys, looking after the Sweet Inspirations. Where did it go from there? Well, <clears throat> I managed the Beach Boys for 10 years. I managed the Sweet Inspirations for probably the same amount of time. It started earlier with the Sweet Inspirations. That was the first group I managed. Then uh, I was a tour manager for Billy Joel for a year plus, which is how it started. Then I really got into film. I'm more into film now in the last five years. Of course, ten years ago, Jerry Schilling Management had a new client, and I was a client of theirs, and that was Elvis Presley Enterprises. And then Jerry Schilling Management and Elvis Presley Enterprises merged to 9200 to one office. So I spent a lot of time working on a deal with RCA Victor between the estate and RCA that had a long lawsuit or whatever, and we were successful in that. And then I co-produced with Priscilla and Rick Husky, Elvis the TV series, and I was the producer down in Memphis on location. So I learned a lot there. I worked closely with the writers. I've done numerous documentaries with Andrew Salt that I've produced for him on Elvis. I was consultant on This Is Elvis, which is the only Elvis project I did within 10 years after he died. I didn't do anything. We are currently finishing a documentary which will air in August on VH1 called Elvis the Waste Up. And it's great, the great classic footage of Elvis from Dorsey to Ed Sullivan to Steve Allen, uh, his first screen test, a lot of those type of things. I'm producing that with Andrew Salt. Peter Gorelnik wrote the narration, and Yutus Bono did the narration. What was he like to work with? It was such an honor to work with Bono. I never thought of this, but there's a lot of Elvis there. He's just down to earth, no bullshit, didn't come in limousines to the narration. Everybody's wanting to get this kind of food and this kind of drinks. And he said, well, could you get some hot tea and maybe some water? His voice was 
scratchy, but he didn't complain, and it worked out great. He worked four hours without a break, would not take a penny for it. I negotiated with other artists uh, to do this, and they really wanted to do it, uh, but their management wanted this and that and more and whatever. And Bono, I sent him the tape through Paul McGinnis's manager, and Paul called back and said, Bono thinks it's a cool project and it would be an honor to do it. And as simple as that. He's doing the biggest tour in the world right now. His time is unbelievable short, and he spent a half a day with us. He's a great guy, and he loves Elvis, and that's kind of nice. That made it all worthwhile. Do you feel part of your responsibility in life now to keep Elvis's name going? To be quite honest with you, I think the last train to Memphis is my last Elvis project. I think I've done as much as I could do with my ability, and I have to move on to other things. How did you feel when Graceland became a museum after Elvis died, and what's it like for you to go back there now with all those memories and yet see all these people trooping around there? Well, you know, I got a few calls from Priscilla when she was thinking about Open It, and she just wanted to talk to some friends and see how they felt and also to understand the circumstances of why at the time she had to open it or or maybe lose it for Lisa. And the care that she took, I mean, one day I got a call from Priscilla, and she said, Jerry, I found the original carpets up in the attic. Uh, what do you think? I mean, they're not quite as good as the new ones they put, and, and of course she put the originals in. Elvis was very proud of Graceland. One of the things he loved to do was to show people through the house. I think it's done with class. You know, it is a monetary uh, business. I think it's wonderful. And yet across the road, though, there is this massive row of shops and all sorts of Elvis memorabilia and so on. Do you not think that's a little bit bad taste? Well, I don't know if you know the history, but before... Elvis Presley Enterprises bought across the street. It was horrible. Low-class, sleazy, bad merchandise, cutthroat people trying to cut each other out, uh, and it looked like hell. So, listen, I'm the last one in the world to talk about Elvis merchandise. I've never done anything with it. it's, It's weird for me, okay? But... At the same time, I have to think broad enough to understand that there is a need. And this, what they've done there, if you need merchandise, I think is, is classy. You know. Okay. Yeah. What about the Elvis Impressionists that seem to be all over the world? What do you think of them? Well, I have mixed emotions. Uh, I, I have found that the ones that I have met, they are the most devoted Elvis fans in the world. One thing I would like to say, though, more importantly, how did Elvis feel? There was a guy named Alan that was in Vegas who was pretty damn good. This is when I thought, man, Elvis impersonators, I don't, you know, that's weird. Mm. There wasn't that many at the time because Elvis was alive, but he was getting good audiences. And I met him and his wife by accident, and he was a really cool, nice guy. So I, on my own, introduced him to Elvis. I told him how we'd go through the back, and I asked Elvis first. And Elvis was very nice to him, and he kind of learned that it was the ultimate compliment, if you will. Uh, Pretty weird, though. (laughs) 
There's been a lot of talk, stupid talk, over the last 20 years that Elvis is still alive, Elvis is doing this, Elvis is doing that. How does that make you feel as a friend of his? Well, I think those type of things are really kind of low class, especially the people who know better and will perpetuate it to sell a book or to sell whatever crap they're trying to sell. There is a sleazy merchandise, not the ones I was talking about, the estate, where, you know, you got Elvis, hey, thank you very much, the peanut butter sandwich thing. I mean, let's go back to what this guy really gave the world, you know. He gave us a great body of music, some good films, but he gave us freedom. He gave us opportunities with what he did. He was more than music. He was more than film. He was, uh, he was a symbol of hope and a symbol of being successful and still being a human being. You know, it's not about peanut butter sandwiches. You said earlier on that your life with Elvis was so fantastic it could never get any better. Does that not worry you? You've got so many years ahead of you that you might never reach that excitement again. Maybe my life is actually in some ways better. I just mean that there was a certain friendship feeling and excitement that was different than all other with Elvis, and I'll never feel that again. I feel very positive of my life now, and I have a lot of things to look forward to. And again, a lot of that, I still have to say, I have to attribute to Elvis. The things that I I could sit here and, yeah, you do it on your own, but I don't know if I'd be producing a major motion picture right now if I hadn't met Elvis back in 1954. Although it's about him. <laughs> um, do you still feel that Elvis is watching over you in some way? I'd like to think that. There's a way I still feel like that uh, some way he's still taking care of me. Maybe it's through, you know, Priscilla and Lisa. I, you know, I, I still uh, am involved uh, with the estate. I'm a consultant, and, uh, you know, they're still taking care of me. How do you sum up your relationship with Elvis? Maybe all these things a little boy in Memphis who didn't have very much dreamed about, he made possible. And uh, and he did it in a very loving, friendship way.